This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. And you're listening to Offspring, a podcast all about the anxieties of a parenting journey. This is episode four, Waiting and Wrestling. A few minutes before I stood at the threshold that separates the dullness of the village-like maternity ward From the bright lights of Surgery City, a person handed me some scrubs and a hairnet. I popped off to the toilet to get changed. I was paranoid in those moments, really paranoid. I have a pretty intense fear of germs at the best of times, so seeing all the warning signs about COVID protocols as I was getting changed in a toilet, just before I was about to head into a room where sterility is of the utmost importance so people literally don't die was challenging. I steadied myself and tried to take a moment to process things. It's one of those times you feel hyper aware of your actions and you feel like you're in a movie or a TV series. Should I splash some water on my face? Wait, no, nobody actually splashes water in their face, do they? Do I know anyone that does that? You just get gross toilet sink water all over yourself. And then you have to try and explain to someone outside that you splashed toilet sink water over your face. And they'll look at you like, why? We're about to head into an operating room. Huh. Nobody actually splashes water on their face. I left the toilet, face unsplashed, to see Nikita and another midwife had waited for me. We entered the OR, and as I started to step over the threshold, my throat began to swell. I think the germ paranoia must have been the last straw. I was empty, and at the end of my rope, I could just feel the tears starting, and if you've ever cried emotionally, you'd know what I'm describing. There's that split second where it's too late to turn back, because the crack in the dam is just about to explode. Part of me feels like I should have limbasted myself for being so selfish and so weak. Like this moment should have been an epiphany where I got perspective and realised that my poor wife was the one actually going through everything and it would be a potent dose of masculine pride if this was the case but that's not what happened what happened is something i'm probably prouder of i was kind to myself i told myself 
that while Gemma was the one who had been to hell and back over the past eight months, witnessing that pain and being powerless to stop it had probably taken some sort of toll on me as well. These moments were toughest on her, obviously, obviously they were. But they were also hard for others around her. Everyone in our family was feeling some sort of strain, especially those in other parts of the country who had to just sit and wait by the phone. I wasn't a villain. I just loved my wife. Somehow, in some way, for the first time, I caught my tears and managed to physically swallow the feeling back down with this like strong, exaggerated gulp as if I was a cartoon from the 1940s. In the space of just one second, I'd gone from being on the cusp of a complete breakdown to pulling myself back together, and I honestly think it was all because I was kind. The taps were shut off, the crack in the dam was patched temporarily with duct tape, and I was able to walk into that room without missing a step, even though in that single second, it could have all been so ugly and awkward. That was at about 7pm on Thursday night, but this final leg of our journey actually began on Wednesday morning. We rolled up to the hospital to get what felt like our 100th ultrasound. Jim's had a particularly troubled pregnancy. She had gestational diabetes, severe SPD, uh, they felt she was at risk of preeclampsia, and she was also having to be off long-term medication that prevented her pituitary gland from growing a prolactinoma in her brain. Gestational diabetes meant that our baby was giant, so running parallel to the violent illness she was feeling, there was just constant agony in her body from carrying around a small tank in her stomach. On top of all that, her waters partially ruptured early, which meant she had to go into hospital for nearly a week, but she wasn't in labour. They just had to monitor her for infection, so she was stuck day after day hoping that a baby might come along when actually it just stubbornly sat inside. The medical team picked a day for her to be induced during that time, but for the week leading up to that, we still had to go and get scans every second morning to check everything was okay. On this Wednesday morning, just two days after being released from the hospital, and about a week before the actual induction date, she couldn't feel the baby. And by this point, James was physically and mentally wrecked. She was just obliterated. I honestly felt like I'd lost my wife at this stage, like she was just the shell of her usual self. One week in this state may as well have been one decade, so we were both just hoping that they would decide to induce early. Because Gemma was feeling so awful, they skipped the ultrasound part and put her straight on a monitor. Our nurse, who was quite pregnant herself, was sympathetic and was hoping for our sake that the doctors might just call it early. While they could tell that the baby was okay, they could also tell that she was engaged and Gemma's agony was not sustainable. This necessitated a trip to an observation room and the first of many, many rounds of waiting. Fortunately, there was a plinth that Gemma could lie on so she could sleep. I just sat there realising that I really did not enjoy the taste of whatever tea they have in Waikato Hospital. After a few hours, a friendly doctor came in. And I'm not a spiritual person. I don't really tap into the universe or forms of energy to try and help me do my bidding. But man, at that point, it felt like most of my brain's power was funneled away from operating my body and channeled entirely towards telepathically convincing this doctor 
to make a call to induce the baby early. After retelling him the story of our journey up to and including that day, he finally declared with almost Keanu Reeves level nonchalance that he was pretty risk averse and thought it would be better to just induce and get things over with. He said that he felt the baby would be fine and that the several days we would miss out on wouldn't make a massive difference in the scheme of things. Despite my fear of germs, I could have kissed him. He should be thankful for all the COVID protocols in place. He left the room and I don't even remember how we reacted. I think we both just breathed a huge sigh of relief knowing that soon this part of the journey would finally be over after all these months. Of course, when you're talking about inducing labour, however, soon is a bit of a relative term. Here's an interesting piece of trivia for you. Sabu, real name Terry Brunk, is a professional wrestler legendary in wrestling circles for his work with upstart Philadelphia-based promotion Extreme Championship Wrestling, or ECW, during the 1990s through to 2001 when ECW went out of business. However, Sabu's career could have taken a completely different path. In 1995, he wrestled on the second ever episode of World Championship Wrestling's brand new live primetime wrestling show, WCW Monday Nitro. With the advent of Nitro, WCW would become an absolute phenomenon of the late 1990s. Its famous war with the then World Wrestling Federation, WWF, now known as WWE, propelled the industry to heights of profitability and cultural relevance never seen before or since. And Sabu was getting in on the ground floor of it all. He was trusted to open one of the most important shows in wrestling history. By March of 1996, he was out of WCW though, and he was wrestling in Japan. WCW was about to go nuclear, and he missed it. Maybe he could have been part of the rise. Perhaps he would have just vanished in the mid-card. Either way, it's an interesting side note and fascinating what if in terms of professional wrestling. Now, if you're wondering why I'm telling you this, it's because when that lovely doctor made the call to induce Gemma early, that meant we didn't actually have a bed booked in. And it turns out that when you're getting induced for labor without an appointment in a medical system that is underfunded and still dealing with a pandemic, the day isn't all excitement and drama. There are long, long spells of waiting where the seconds quickly become laced with this anxious tedium that could really be weaponized into an effective form of torture. You must wait and wait and wait and wait. As mentioned, Gemma thankfully had a plinth to lie on. I had a chair, so she slept for a bit while I just sat. And when you are anxiously trying to kill a whole day without any real accurate indication of when you might move to the next step in your journey, you can find yourself taking comfort and reading, listening, and watching all kinds of things. I happen to be obsessed with professional wrestling. It's an obsession that led me to find enormous comfort in reading about wrestling, listening to podcasts about wrestling, and watching wrestling during these long stretches of hours. Anecdotes like the Sabu one are so imprinted on my brain that whenever I think about the birth of my daughter, Amongst the stress, the worry, the guilt, the joy, the relief, and all the other thousand emotions I felt, I also think about Sabu. Wrestling helped keep my sanity over that very long 34-ish hours from arriving at the hospital to meeting Ava for the first time. 
James had arrived in that little room at about 11am, and it would be another 13 hours until she got put into the delivery suite. I had to leave at some point to run errands, and this was as much for my own well-being as for the errands actually needing to be run. I desperately hoped that while I was out, I would receive a phone call telling me that Gemma had been moved, as if it was my presence that was inexplicably slowing progress. As my absence ticked over into a couple of hours, I felt guilty, thinking that I was abandoning her and that I must have missed a call. There's no way she could still be waiting. But no, she was just in that room napping. So I returned to her and joined her in waiting a bit more. When I returned, I was sure that I must have killed enough time so that things would have moved along a little bit, but they hadn't. So I sat and read and watched and listened to stories about wrestling while Gemma fell in and out of sleep. I knew I was on the cusp of life-altering change, and to be honest, in those moments, even with the wrestling chat providing a nice soundtrack, I felt utterly alone. Gems was resting, nobody else was allowed into the hospital, and there was seemingly no end in sight anytime soon. And a hospital was a grim place to try and keep positive, and to try and find comfort while enduring the sickening anxiety that comes with knowing that nothing in your life will ever be the same again. So I desperately tried to find something to break the monotony and provide a distraction. On one of my walks I stopped and properly noticed the chapel that I'd strolled by countless times over the past eight months. I figured that this was as good a time as any to check it out. It was silent and that was nice. I wandered around reading the various plaques and I flicked through the massive bible they had hoping to just find some words of beauty more than anything else. Nothing really jumped out though. While the good book might have been a bit of a letdown, there was undoubtedly peace in that empty chapel. I stayed there quite a while, just thinking about all the people who had sought comfort there when dealing with the opposite experience of my own. I'd be lying if I said that I had a great moment of serenity where the anxiety and fear just washed away. But I did find some gratitude, and that's about the best thing you can ask for when you're scared. I went back to be with Gemma. At about midnight, we finally got shifted into a delivery suite. They started her induction and her epidural and told us it would be hours yet before anything happened. There was an oversized recliner for me and a big bed for her. We were just both so relieved and so ecstatic. While it might not be the best sleep of your life in a recliner, it felt fantastic to rest knowing that all the waiting that lay ahead wasn't just waiting for the process to start anymore. When the next round of waiting was over, we'd have a baby. But boy, did she make us wait. By the time morning rolled around, any hopes that this would be a process that could be over by lunchtime were well and truly out the window. Part of me was devastated, but part of me also knew that there was a live episode of AEW Dynamite, now that's all elite wrestling for those keeping track of the different initialisms, at midday. Therefore, if things were that slow, I might actually be able to watch it while my wife was technically in labour. And you might not think that's cool, but I sure as hell did. And it turned out that I was able to, and Gemma, God bless her, thought it was funny as hell, and even allowed me to take some photos and put them on Twitter, where I actually got a like from Brandy Rhodes, who's the chief brand officer for the company, which was pretty cool. I ran into Gemma's cousin's wife, Nikita, out in the hallway. 
Nikita was at the time training to be a midwife and was working and I could not have been happier or more relieved to see her. She came and checked up on Gemma and when her shift ended she actually stayed on to be with us. Now Nikita has her own family and was working crazy hours catching up from shifts that were missed because of COVID. But she was selflessly there for us, which is an act of kindness I'll never stop being thankful for. We actually started to develop a good little team. One of Gemma's best friends, Rochelle, had come up from Palmerston North to be her birthing partner. And yes, I know I was there, but Rochelle is infinitely better in a crisis. We also had our completely overworked and completely shattered midwife, Nicole. If I recall rightly, she had been up for about 30 hours at that point. Everyone was desperate to meet the baby, but she just wouldn't come out. She wanted to stay where it was warm and where food was provided, which I empathize with completely. Finally, at about 4pm, there was some progress and Gemma could really start pushing. I don't really want to talk about the failed attempts to get the baby out naturally, because they were horrible. Gemma might have had an epidural, but that doesn't make pushing easier. We all had to help her. And I honestly felt like I was abusing her. We all had to push with all our might and basically fold her up like an accordion. We were all puffing by the end of it. So I can only imagine how much force she was enduring from having multiple people pushing her all at once with everything they had. She was trying so hard to focus on the correct breathing while enduring colossal pain and frustration as the process continuously came to a grinding halt. After a couple of hours, it was clear our girl was stuck, and there was nothing else for it. Gems would need an emergency C-section, and the wait would continue. Part of me felt relief that I would finally get to stop seeing Gems in such pain, but part of me just felt shattered that the baby was stuck, and now surgical instruments would have to be involved. I swear this baby was doing everything she could to ensure that she would be an only child. So it was time to head off to the surgical room. Having avoided a near breakdown, I crossed the threshold into the surgical room and it was kind of beautiful. At once there were so many things to take on board. The brightness of the lights was the first, but then the scale of the whole enterprise hit me. There were so many people in that room. I can't give you a number. It felt like 40. It was probably half that realistically. And the room itself was enormous too. I always pictured these things you see on TV, which seemed so cramped. But this place, I felt like you could park 10 trucks in there and everyone would be able to open their doors comfortably. I then started noticing things that I didn't expect because all the new stimuli bombarded my already overwhelmed brain. I noticed a table of beautifully clean instruments with someone seated behind them like they were serving scalpel sandwiches at a deli. The nurses asked what music we wanted to put on, which is really cool, but I was distracted by the fact that they were using a Yui boom. We have one of those at home and it hasn't worked properly in a long time. It felt like the kind of inconvenient device that has enough Bluetooth issues to create a battle every time someone new tries to use it. That seemed needlessly distracting in this situation. The lines on the ground that I had to stay behind were just tape. And I don't know what I thought they should be, but it felt so at odds with all this elite technology surrounding me. And when the surgeon came in, I swear he was talking on a cordless landline, not an iPhone, 
like all the other doctors I'd seen, but an old-fashioned cordless phone with a landline number and a range of about 20 metres. I couldn't be more focused on absolutely banal minutiae if I was trying. I think part of that just came from the fact that I was in a surgical room and I'm not a surgeon, so it felt like I was in on some secret. I, I felt like Dorothy in Oz, like I was witness to this curtain being pulled. But rather than seeing a charlatan magician who probably couldn't pull a rabbit from a hat, there was this large team of highly trained professionals all working to safely pull a baby from a stomach. It wasn't all light-hearted observational time, obviously. For whatever reason, once everyone got cracking on the procedure, the doctor felt that they should have one more go at getting the baby out naturally. And this first involved inserting a catheter, which was incredibly difficult as the baby was in the way, and nobody could successfully do it. As long as I live, I will never be able to describe the nausea and stress I felt as I watched person after person relentlessly fail to insert a piece of rubber hose into my wife's bladder. Each attempt got rougher and rougher, and after minutes of this horror show, I noticed some blood on the floor. The blood looked like it was floating in the lubricant that they used. I was transfixed by it. I couldn't see what they were doing in detail, because obviously there were sheets up. But that bit of blood floating on the floor triggered some sort of primal fear in me. It was like it gave away the secret brutality of what was going on. I wanted to get up and scream at everyone to just stop, but I couldn't. I just had to wait, knowing that this is what needed to be done, and they probably had done this thousands of times before. I knew Gemma couldn't feel it now, but I could just imagine the pain she would be in later, from all the trauma once the numbing wore off. And that was just them getting the catheter in. The forceps came next. Childbirth is an ugly, brutal, terrifying phenomenon. Watching them try and fail multiple times to snatch our baby with forceps only increased the flight or fight syndrome I was desperately trying to tame. Now I could feel both my wife and my baby being beaten senseless. I don't recall the sounds and the smells like other people say, but I vividly remember the frustration that came with feeling powerless and angry or simultaneously feeling completely vulnerable and trusting. Everything had taken so long already and now we were stuck waiting once more just to get us back to the point where we thought we would be starting from in the OR. Seemingly out of nowhere though, the chaos ceased somewhat. And the forceps had dropped. It was time to go through the sunroof, officially. There was a collective sense of relief between both Gemma and myself. And it was actually at this point that I realised I was so wrapped up in my own anxieties. I had not been of any real support to her. I held her hand tighter and stroked her hair and told her everything would be okay. And everything from that moment was a blur until they told me to stand up to see the baby or at least that's what I thought they said I originally hadn't wanted to watch so I wasn't expecting it but I didn't really get a say in the matter so I stood up as I was demanded to I cautiously looked down and saw nothing I was a bit perplexed as to what I was looking at 
a couple of seconds later, this thing was suddenly there. Because I'd leaned over expecting to see a baby and didn't see one, I was caught completely off guard. I'd never witnessed a C-section, so I had no frame of reference for what it looked like when a baby came out. What I saw in that second was utterly alien to me. My brain didn't know what it was looking at. It might have well been a bag of laundry for all that I knew. Memory is a funny thing. I know this isn't possibly how things could have happened, but this is how I see it in my head regardless. This still, dark, purple lump suddenly lit up and unfolded and screamed. It changed in the space of half a second from something completely otherworldly to my daughter. And before I had a chance to really take that in and realize what was happening, she cried just to really hit me over the head with the fact that yes, she was here now. The wait was over and that thing I had no frame of reference for was our real life baby. So many people talk about how you fall in love at first sight, but that's far too simplistic. It wasn't love that rushed over me in those first moments. It was everything. I've never felt feelings like that. Love is too basic, too trivial almost, to describe the rush that nearly knocked me off my feet when she cried. Within a maximum of five seconds, she'd come out, unfolded, cried, and been whipped off to get cleaned up and checked that she was okay. And within those five seconds, Gemma had started bawling her eyes out, and I'd collapsed into her, bawling my eyes out too. It was over. Dignity be damned, both of our internal dams broke, and we sobbed and we sobbed like neither of us had ever sobbed before or since. Nikita, our saint of the day, pulled me aside to cut the cord, and I was still so shaken and confused, I seemed to forget how to use scissors. And I didn't even get it separated with one cut. They asked me if I wanted to hold her and I told them that she had to go be with Gemma through my tears. There was no way I was going to get in the way of that. So they wrapped her up and they placed her on Gemma and we all held each other, crying away with the kind of lightness and relief that I don't think I'll ever experience again. And honestly, I kind of hope I don't. One of the nurses asked if we decided on a name, um, as we'd floated a few to him at the start. Truthfully though, we knew she was a neighbour before she was born, and that's the name we gave her then and there. She was Ava. She was real, safe, and against all conceivable thoughts that I had carried with me for the longest time. I was a father. We soaked it in, a family huddled together, utterly blind to all the people around us moving things and getting ready for the following procedure. We were an island of serene dopamine and serotonin in a noisy ocean of life and death. I couldn't stay at the hospital that night, so I left to go home alone after a few hours. It was late, probably close to midnight at this point. I stopped in at a drive through to get some food, and even though I was shattered, I needed some time to just embrace the surrealness of everything that I was experiencing. There was no turning back. There was no putting that baby back inside. Nothing was going to be the same. As I sat on the bed trying to make sense of everything, I did the only thing that made sense at that time. I'd found the second episode of WCW Nitro. I queued it up and I watched Sabu fight Alex Wright. At the same time, I 
ate my dinner, I drank my coke, and I relived that moment I first saw Ava over and over and over again in my head. I was tired, I was thoroughly confused, but I was also happy in a way I had never been before. The waiting was over, and soon the wrestling was over too. I closed my eyes and fell asleep. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.